Good evening. Um, I had the privilege to uh, represent two young boys, both who claimed they were molested by Michael Jackson. They had some similarities that I, even though they were 10 years apart. This is attorney Larry Feldman speaking at an event for the Los Angeles County Bar Association in 2010 about his time representing Jordy Chandler in the 1993 civil case against Michael Jackson, which resulted in a settlement reportedly worth north of $20 million. A decade later, Feldman briefly represented Jackson accuser Gavin Arvizo prior to a criminal trial in which Jackson was charged with multiple counts of child molestation. Both boys had this in common. They were 13 years of age. They were prepubescent young men. Both of these boys came from broken homes. Both of these boys lived with their mothers um, at the time that uh, the alleged molestations took place. Both of these boys came from homes that their mothers allowed them to spend an inordinate amount of time uh, with Michael Jackson alone. Both of these mothers allowed their boys to sleep over Michael Jackson's house in the bedroom, in the bed um, that Michael Jackson slept in. Both of these uh, parents, mothers at least, uh, received things of value from Michael Jackson during the time that they had this relationship with Michael Jackson. In the first case, it was simple because this boy was being chastised and couldn't survive under the circumstances that existed with all this leak. In the second case, you had a boy who had terminal cancer at one time, who was diagnosed of terminal cancer, at least had stage four cancer. And here this kid has now got to decide and his parents have to decide whether or not uh, they should do anything about this, whether they should go to the police, whether they should go to the district attorney, whether they should go to children's services, whether they should ask for money from Michael Jackson and do nothing except try to get a quick settlement. There's all these kind of issues out there that these people have to deal with. And you have generally parents making these decisions who in some form or another were in complicit in, if anything happened, uh, allowing it to happen. So they're helping make decisions that impact these kids for life. From Luminary Media and Ninth Planet Audio, this is Telephone Stories. Episode 8, Like a Brother, Like a Father. Hey, Omar. Oh, hey, buddy. How are you? Good. I'm in this guest room of this cabin in Tahoe. I'm hoping it's not too echoey. I feel like I sound like I'm in a submarine. <laughs> no, it sounds fine. Well, I I mean, I'm in Spain, so um luckily I brought this, you know, record this little recorder. So, dude, I had the a hell of a time getting this thing set up. So, anyway, 
this is where we are. So the Martin Bashir documentary airs, right? And then mm-hmm. people people saw this kid like holding hands and sitting on Michael Jackson's lap and like cuddling and all hell breaks loose. Yeah. Once again, all hell breaks loose. This time, though, the principal accuser was a boy named Gavin Arvizo. The storylines, though, were pretty reminiscent of those with Jordy Chandler and the 1993-1994 case. Right, right. And one version was basically like Michael Jackson as an adult, had a lot of underage male friends, um, like boys, Mm -hmm. and he soon met Jordy Chandler, became obsessed with him, developed a sexual relationship with him. And then Jordy's dad finds out, right? And then um, they tried to settle it without lawyers, and later they filed a court case and then settled. And it settled, right. And that's a great summation. Uh, Thank you. The counter to that, and and I'll speak for, you know, Jackson superfans here, is like Michael Jackson had a lot of underage male friends and befriended a lot of families and got close with their boys. And they were all these deep, innocent friendships because Michael Jackson was innocent and pure at heart in the media and the tabloids were cruel and just didn't understand his generosity and pureness. And then Jackson met Jordy Chandler, befriended him. And then Jordy's father, who was jealous of Michael and wanted to be in Hollywood, engineered an extortion plot against the entertainer and it resulted in a civil lawsuit which beget an unfair criminal investigation which resulted in no charges but before that to end all the hubbub jackson settled the case right right that pretty much sums it up um and i'm kind of worried you're about to say the second case is is a lot more complicated with you know competing narratives and lots of wormholes oh it's a total clusterfuck it's a clusterfuck I'm here to tell you as a friend, Omar, that the second case, this whole mess of things that ends up in a formal, actual criminal trial of Michael Jackson is much more complicated. Yeah, great. Yeah, but I think you can handle it, Omar. <laughs> okay, so um, I think if if we're going to get into the second accuser and his family, you need to um, please set the stage again for me. And um, also, who who is... Like, who is in this family? Uh, okay, exactly. so they're the Arvizos. Okay. Some some pronounce them the Arvizios, but uh, it seems like it's mostly the Arvizos. They're a family of five. The mom is Janet. The dad is David. They had three kids. Davelin, some pronounce it Davelin. Davelin, a girl, the oldest. Gavin, a boy, the middle. The youngest is named Star. Uh-huh. And Star's a boy? Yes, good question. Okay, okay. Um, so not to, I mean, not to be, not to sound weird, but from what I remember, they're poor, um, they're Latino and they live in East LA. Is that right? Yeah. It's a little reductive, but basically they're this poor, somewhat troubled Latino family from East LA. So if that's the case, how, first of all, who meets Michael Jackson? Which of the Arvizo kids? Gavin, the boy. Gavin. Okay. So then how... Being, you know, like a poor family from East L.A., how does Gavin end up meeting Michael Jackson? Great. So I'll set it up. It's the summer of 1999. Janet Arvizo, the mom, puts her three kids into a comedy camp for underprivileged children at the Laugh Factory Comedy Club. And it's That's under... the one up on, uh, is that the one up on Sunset Boulevard? Yep. Yeah, the fan right. club. Okay. And it's under... Okay. This comedy camp is under the tutelage, or at least the children are under the tutelage of a woman named Louise Palanker. My name is Louise Palanker, and I'm a 
entrepreneur, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Palanker started her career in television and radio. She produced and directed a documentary on the 1960s group The Cow Sills called Family Band, The Cow Sills Story. She hosts a podcast called Things I Found Online. Right, things I Found Online. I am Louise Palanker. The show is... Her background, though, was as a teacher and stand-up comedian. I started doing stand-up, and then Jamie Masada, the owner of the Laugh Factory, he began this program where um, he would... All summer long, he would teach stand-up comedy to underprivileged children, and it would be kind of an all-day Saturday thing. So a lot of the comedians would come down there and help out with the kids, and um, and that's where I met the Arvizo kids. The Arvizo children, Star, at this point, age 8, Gavin, age 9, and Davelin, age 13, arrived by city bus to the Laugh Factory that summer to take the free stand-up classes designed to help kids with a talent or a need to overcome shyness come out of their shells. Gavin was not shy. In fact, he stood out for his wit, charm, and ardent desire to become a working comedian. Following the stand-up classes, Palanker kept in touch with the Arvizos through their mother, Janet. Winter came, and my friend Fritz Coleman is a weatherman here in town. Oh man, I love Fritz Coleman. Okay. Thanks, Fritz! You want weather? I'll give you weather. Fritz Coleman. See? On the Channel 4 News. So, Omar, according to Louise Palanker, Fritz Coleman and she were best friends, and also Fritz did stand-up, so he was kind of in that world. Huh, okay, I get it. So, Fritz... He had two small kids, and he wanted to bring Christmas presents to a family that needed... Uh, some some Christmas that maybe they weren't going to be able to uh, provide for their own kids. And I suggested the Arvizo family because they just stuck out in my memory. So we set it up and Fritz and I and his two boys went down there and we brought them a microwave and maybe a couple of other, other things. And so we had stayed in touch. A few months after the Christmas visit in 2000, Palenka received a frantic phone call from Janet. I got a call from Gavin's mom and she was just screaming, Gavin has cancer. And I'm just like, I, my mind and body would not accept this. It just, it wasn't sinking in. I... Doctors at Kaiser told the Arvizo family that if the cancer didn't kill Gavin, the high levels of chemotherapy would. Fortunately, Gavin's time in comedy camp at the Laugh Factory had connected him to a big world. See, the thing you have to keep in mind is that Gavin knew a lot of comedians from having been in the Laugh Factory program. A lot of comedians knew Gavin, and so with, with support from Jamie, a lot of comedians were going down to the hospital to visit him. And so his idol was Jay Leno, and I was dating Jay Leno's writer. So that was pretty easy to hook up. Gavin began to call Leno while at the hospital, at the trial in 2005, Leno testified about talking to Gavin on the phone. According to Palanker, the calls from Gavin to Leno became persistent. And I think the family kind of abused that number. And I had to kind of put a clamp on that and say, you guys need to stop calling Jay. So I don't get it. Why does all this matter? Well, it all matters because according to Palanker's trial testimony, the Arvizo family were enamored with celebrities. Like they met George Lopez, they sent famous people cards and called them over and over. Palenker was bothered by it. And shortly before the trial, Palenker was interviewed by two Santa Barbara sheriff's detectives who recorded her interview with them without her knowledge. 
when the sheriff's detectives finally came to interview me, I was already going to be subpoenaed by the defense. And they, they saw me as this person who had given this family a lot of money and was probably going to be a witness for the defense and like contribute to the story that this is a family of con artists. And so they did not tell me that the sheriff's detectives did not tell me that they were recording me. So I, I thought that, you know, I'm finally talking to the good guys and I just sort of poured my heart out. According to her testimony in the 2005 trial, in the interview with sheriff's detectives, Palenker said of Gavin's mother, Janet, and of the family, and at first I thought, maybe they saw celebrities as a lifeline to get her out of her situation that she had gotten into at 16. Also, according to her testimony in the 2005 trial, Palenker later told an investigator for the defense that she thought that Janet Arvizo had a hostage syndrome that began at her marriage at age 16 to what Janet claimed was an abusive husband. Huh. Well, you know, like you said, it sounds like they were kind of a troubled family. Big time. And there was also about a year before the comedy camp started, this whole debacle with allegedly shoplifting school uniforms at JCPenney. Okay. All right. I don't really want to go down the wormhole, but I'll, I'll bite. Okay. Well, I'll make it brief because this incident is very important because the defense made a lot of hay out of it at the trial. So I'm going to take you back briefly to August 27th, 1998, West Covina, California. I love it when you talk like that. According to multiple sources and court testimony, the two boys, Gavin and Starr, left a JCPenney store with their arms full of school uniforms that they did not pay for. Janet Arvizo was not with them at the time. She was actually somewhere else in the mall dropping off, if you can believe it, her resume for a new job as a loss prevention agent. <laughs> that's, well, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, and so Janet appeared in the JCPenney parking lot just in time to witness this scuffle between her boys and security guards. Janet threw herself into the melee, and it ended, allegedly, with injuries to Gavin, including a fractured elbow, bumps, and scrapes. Janet later claimed in a lawsuit that she was beaten and fondled by the guards. She settled the case out of court for about $152,000, which she didn't end up acknowledging later when she completed a welfare application. All right, so I'm going to take a wild guess here uh, that she got hit with welfare fraud. She pleaded no contest to welfare fraud. Okay. Um, but to get back on track, whatever the family's issues, though, Gavin Arvizo was for sure undeniably sick with cancer. Is that right? He was as sick as any person should ever be. Luis Palanker. I watched him in the hospital holding his head and throwing up into bags. I would say goodbye to him in my heart because I knew he was going to die and may not be there tomorrow. So if there's any kind of rumors online about that he wasn't actually sick, that's bull. According to Diane Diamond's book about the Jackson cases, Be Careful Who You Love, which is jam-packed with interesting details, doctors removed a kidney from Gavin and a tumor that was reported to weigh 7.2 kilograms, or about 16 pounds. According to trial testimony, doctors discovered that the cancer had spread to Gavin's lymph nodes and lungs, requiring punishing chemotherapy sessions. Doctors warned his parents that the boy might not survive. He did, of course, and as part of his recovery, after leaving Kaiser Hospital, Palenker testified that she paid for what she described as a germ-free room to be installed in Gavin's grandparents' suburban track home. 
During Gavin's illness, more celebrities entered his orbit. I went to the hospital one day and there was a gigantic basket. I mean, it was just... It was like it could have contained a pony. It was a very large basket. So I said, hey, uh, who, you know, who's, who sent that? And Gavin just said, Michael. And I'm like, uh, that's a pretty common name. Because <laughs> you can narrow that down for me. And he's like, Michael Jackson. And I, I just kind of went, wow. But I mean, he was already receiving attention from a lot of celebrities. Oh, okay. So wait just a second. You still haven't answered this question. How... Did Gavin Arvizo get connected to Michael Jackson? So there's versions here. The first that I heard was that Gavin was part of the Make-A-Wish Foundation, and he asked to meet Jackson. Oh, okay. Is that true? Doesn't seem to be true. Second one was posited by the Laugh Factory owner, this guy Jamie Masada, who was quoted as saying that he called Neverland while Gavin was sick and pleaded for them to put Michael Jackson in touch with them. There's also a woman who claimed to have connected them. Oh, who's that? My name's Carol Lemire. Carol Lemire was interviewed by a gentleman named Scott Ross, a private investigator who worked for Jackson's defense attorney leading up to the trial. Here she is in our interview discussing the points that she shared with Ross. His interview notes with her were later submitted in court. My son was a tap dancer. So I used to take him over to the Kennedys, which they were famous tap dancers, and that family showed up there, the Arvizios, and for some reason they attached themselves to me, maybe because I drove a brand new Lexus, I don't know. Next thing I know, Renee Watson from Fresh Prince, remember she played the mother of Will Smith. So she calls me one day and she said, Gavin, the kid that taps with your son, has really bad cancer. She said, he's a big fan of Michael. She said, can you introduce him? And I go, oh, I don't know. So I gave in to her, which to this day I regret every day I gave in to her because I think it destroyed Michael. All right. So Jackson starts sending Gavin gift baskets. And that's not all, according to Luis Palanker. After Christmas, Gavin had a PlayStation 2. And I, and I said, how'd you get a PlayStation 2? And once again, he said, Michael. So... I knew that they had been communicating, but I, I just didn't put a lot of thought behind it until they started going up there. And when Gavin's maybe was a little bit better, they, um, his mom would say, oh, yeah, we're going to Neverland. And so I, I was aware that he was going to Neverland. And that's about all I knew at that point. That August, Jackson sent a limousine to pick up the Arvizo family and drive them from East Los Angeles to Los Olivos in Santa Barbara County, about a 150-mile trip. Gavin would later testify that on their first night at Neverland, Jackson took him and his brother, Star, aside and told them to ask their parents if they could sleep in the master bedroom that night. Their parents, he testified, agreed. Gavin and his brother would later testify that Jackson and another man, Frank Tyson, also known as Frank Cassio, showed the boys pornography on a laptop. In one late night scene illustrated in their testimony, the boy spoke of seeing an image with a woman lifting her t-shirt, to which Jackson joked, got milk, and then leaned over to his sleeping son, Prince, and whispered, Prince, you're missing all the P-U-S-S-Y. The visits sound super creepy, but Gavin, along with his father and brother, kept coming back to Neverland. 
a film crew was there on one such visit. The video is easily available to find on YouTube. Portions of it appeared in the rebuttal documentary that later aired on Fox. One of the prosecutors in the 2005 case, Ron Zonin, says the footage was shot by Michael's videographer. The video also seems to match the description of a DVD that Janet Arvizo later testified to screening for DCFS officials at the behest of Jackson's aides following a complaint at Gavin's school. In it, Gavin Arvizo, bony, with patches of hair and dressed in an oversized yellow jersey, strolls around the grounds with Jackson, who is dressed in a black oversized shirt and black pants holding a huge black umbrella. Underneath the scene, a haunting Pied Piper-style flute plays over the loudspeakers of the property as the two cross a cobblestone bridge. A videographer speaks with other camera crew members here. Moments later in the footage, Jackson boards his miniature choo-choo train with the emaciated Gavin. The next shot is of Gavin's brother, Star, at this point prepubescent and a little husky, being coached by the videographer. Okay. Action. Um, my name is Star and I'm here. I really feel sad about my brother all sick and everything. And, um, um, all, all, all they know about the cancer is um, aggressive and everything. That's it. That's all I know. As Jackson walks with Star, who is pushing Gavin in a wheelchair, he faintly sings the Backstreet Boys. Everybody. <laughs> All right, but up to this point, no molestation has been alleged, right? Is that is that the, what's happening? Yep, that's what's happening. But uh, of okay. course, they they testify later that they were shown pornography on their first visit, Gavin and Star. Oh. Okay. Um, so where was Louise Palenker um, and the Laugh Factory Comedy Club celebrity like subplot and all this? Okay, so Gavin, his dad, and Brother Star go back to their house in L.A. Uh, mm-hmm. And according to the L.A. Times, in late October of 2000, the Laugh Factory hosted a benefit for Gavin to help offset his medical expenses. Wow. Those set to appear were comedians Bob Saget and Damon Wayans. What happened was Jamie would throw benefits for Gavin at the Laugh Factory. And by this point, Gavin had been going up to Neverland. Louise Palanker. And there's like this upstairs VIP area. And Gavin was upstairs with me and his siblings. Because at this point, Gavin was really still kind of this wise guy kid. You know, he, he had this, whole, like, swagger. Like, he's a very cool, Gavin's a very cool person. <laughs> he had this swagger, and he's just kind of like, he would shout things down to the comedians, and because he's the sick kid, nobody's going to say, Gavin, stop. Like, th- this guy has timing, and then he's <laughs> attempting to, uh, you know, successfully land this joke, and you can't just yell things to him. But, you know, everybody was sort of walking, you know, carefully around this Gavin's benefit. If Gavin wants to yell at the comedians, he will, but... It was like that. He was kind of a little bit cheeky. And I should pause here to note, per Louise Palanker's trial testimony, there were actually two separate benefits for Gavin. Each resulted in, she said, about 800 to to $1,000 in cash and checks for Gavin. And 
About this time, Palenker started to drift away from Gavin, in part because he was getting better. And also, Gavin had become friends with another comedian he met at one of the benefits. So I hear him, I hear Chris Tucker saying to Gavin, you know, you know, Michael Jackson. And Gavin's like, yeah, you know. Gavin Arvizo eventually connected Chris Tucker to Michael Jackson. Tucker later told his version of these events on, of all places, The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. Now, what I say? I saw you, you were hanging with Michael Jackson. You guys, are you guys close? You guys buddies? I love Michael Jackson. Yeah. That's a good friend of mine. Michael, yeah. we was, I was together with him all day yesterday. Yeah. We met, we, we met a very special way, and uh, we all, me and Mike always talk about it. Chris Tucker then explained, for the national television audience, Gavin Arvizo's cancer diagnosis, recovery, and the subsequent meeting at the Laugh Factory. Uh, his name is Gavin, and he's a good, real good friend of mine. I love him to death. He said, uh, he met me, he said, hey, Chris, how you doing? Uh, thanks for coming. And he said, I, I, I know Michael Jackson. I was like, yeah, right, right, yeah, okay. How you doing? You feeling good? He said, all right, yeah, I know Michael Jackson. And I come and find out later, he really did know Michael Jackson. <laughs> so he would always tell me, I said, did Michael call you today? <laughs> did you mention me? Really? <laughs> when can I go to Never Never Land? He was all... And finally, one day I was filming Rush Hour 2. I'll never forget this. I was in the middle of a scene. And Gavin runs on the set in the middle of the set. And he comes and he says, Michael Jackson wants to speak to you on the phone. I said, what? He said, Michael's on the phone. I said, Greg, cut, cut. <laughs> Went in the trailer. Michael was on the phone. And Michael said, I love you. I love your work. And I want to meet you. And I was like, I want to meet you too. <laughs> I love you too. I love you, Chris. I love you too, Michael. Once Gavin connected Chris Tucker to Michael Jackson, the two became fast friends. Tucker even appeared in Jackson's 2001 music video slash short film, You Rock My World. No, 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 I paid for it last time. You're the one who wanted to come time. here, not me. You wanted to come. See, that's why I don't like going to eat with black people, because when the bill yeah. comes, they start tripping. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's why you paying for it. In the meantime, according to Chris Tucker's testimony in the trial, he maintained a generous friendship with Gavin Arvizo. He treated the boy to a private airplane trip, to a Raiders football game, and tickets to the Los Angeles Lakers, where Gavin got a photo taken with Kobe Bryant. Yeah, then Chris Tucker kind of took Gavin and, and uh, his family under, under his wing. But years later, during Chris Tucker's trial testimony, his stories about Gavin and the Arvizo family weren't flattering. He described how, once he befriended Gavin, the Arvizos became overly attached to Tucker and seemed to be taking advantage of his generosity. Tucker described Gavin as cunning, a characterization that was helpful for the defense, which painted the Arvizos as a family of con artists. During the time that Gavin was under Chris Tucker's wing, his parents got into a messy divorce. In a 2005 story, citing police records and public documents, the Los Angeles Times reported that in October 2001, Janet Arvizo filed for a restraining order against David, saying, quote, violence in the marriage was a daily occurrence. The judge granted the order and gave sole custody to Janet. David Arvizo eventually pleaded guilty to misdemeanor corporal injury to a spouse and was ordered to attend 52 sessions of a program for domestic abusers. He violated the restraining order by holding his daughter captive in his car and threatening to kill her and the rest of the family. David Arvizo pleaded no contest to one count of willful cruelty to a child and received four years of probation. After the split, Janet began dating a major in the U.S. Army Reserves, named Jay Jackson, who was no relation to Michael Jackson. Jay subsequently accompanied the Arvizos with two busloads of partygoers who went from a Beverly Hills hotel on a September morning in 2002 up to Neverland Ranch. 
The event was a birthday party for Dustin Tucker, Chris Tucker's son. At Neverland, the festivities lasted throughout the day. Michael Jackson was not present, so Gavin was unable to show the singer the miraculous recovery he had made. His cancer was now in remission, and under a doctor's care, Gavin was gaining weight and becoming physically active again. But as fate would have it, ten days after the birthday party, the Arvizo family was drawn back into Jackson's life when they received a phone call inviting the children up to Neverland for a day of fun with the singer and an overnight stay. Their mother allowed it. And on Thursday, September 26th, at 2.30 p.m., according to the Neverland logbooks entered into evidence at the trial, Gavin, now age 12, his sister, Davelin, age 16, and his brother, Star, age 11, arrived at the ranch, driven by Jackson's private chauffeur. According to Gavin's testimony, shortly after their arrival, Jackson pulled him into the Neverland library for a chat. Hey, you want to be an actor, right? Jackson asked Gavin. Gavin told him, yeah, but I want to be a comedian, though. Jackson told him he was going to put Gavin in the movies, and what was coming next would be his audition. It hadn't dawned on the Arvizo children that they had been invited back up that day for the purpose of being filmed for a documentary special that was, at the time, of the utmost importance to Jackson as he sought, once again, to rebuild his public image. Nor had they any idea that their participation would soon place them at the center of the world's attention. When people hear that children from other families have come and they've stayed in your house, they've stayed in your bedroom, um, well, very few. But, you know, some have. And they say, is that really appropriate for a man, a grown man, to be doing that? How do you respond to that? I feel sorry for them because that's judging someone who wants to really help people. Why can't you share your bed? The most loving thing to do is to share your bed with someone. You, know? really, you really think that? Yeah. Living with Michael Jackson, the Martin Bashir documentary, aired in Great Britain on February 3rd and was set to air in the States on February 6th. In the UK, a media firestorm was already brewing. Welcome back. Well, did you see it? The ITV1 program, Living with Michael Jackson. It showed the pop star as you've never seen him before, climbing trees, racing cars, and talking as he's never talked before. Here's Nina Nana. But it's his friendship with other children that raises more questions tonight. 12-year-old Gavin reveals he spends nights at Neverland, sometimes in Jackson's bed, the star on the floor. Tonight, ITV News showed the astonishing program to invited guests to get their verdict. David English, a record executive, speaks here. We have a situation here where a man who has made a living out of fantasy sometimes loses touch with reality, and I think with the children's situation, it's pretty dangerous. Jackson's camp had seen a copy of the script before it aired, and they knew how much trouble it spelled for the singer. So Jackson's advisors began girding for yet another legal and public relations campaign. In addition to teams of lawyers hired both in England and America, such as high-profile criminal defense attorney Mark Garagos, a PR team was brought in to quell the damage. It was full-on crisis mode at Neverland Ranch. An employee testified from his time there that if an octopus could pick up the phone every two seconds, that's how many calls we were getting. On February 4th, the day after the documentary aired in the UK, according to Chris Tucker's testimony at the trial, the comedian received a phone call from Gavin that the Arvizos were already being hounded by the media and wanted to get out of town. 
Gavin told Tucker that they wanted to find Michael Jackson, who they thought was in Miami. There were lengthy, tedious arguments at the trial over phone records. At one point, DA Tom Snedden and Tucker had an extended exchange about his phone records over who called whom. Was it Jackson who initiated the calls to ask for help from Tucker and bring the Arvizos to Miami? Or did the Arvizos call Tucker to escape from the paparazzi and unite with Jackson? Regardless, they all flew on a chartered private jet that night to Florida, a place where most people go to escape their problems. The next morning, Chris Tucker's brother picked them up at the airport and brought them all to the Turnberry Inn, a luxurious resort in Miami. According to Janet Arvizo's testimony, Jackson's team was waiting there, planning a press conference for the Arvizo family to participate in. My understanding was that it aired in England a few days before it was set to air in the United States, and it was a PR disaster. And they were rallying the spin patrol to get a hold of the Arvizos and get them away from anybody that might be loosely associated with the press. They had sort of a three-day heads up, and they scooped up the Arvizos and got them to this resort in Florida. In Janet's testimony, she described the Germans, known as Ronald and Dieter, and Jackson, often pulling Gavin into a room alone to talk to him about the impending press conference. She described the Germans as being the damage control team, and Jackson told her to do what they said. According to Chris Tucker's testimony about the Miami excursion, at one point, he was trying to talk to Michael, and Janet Arvizo kept interrupting them. Tucker said that Janet kept reiterating, manically, that Tucker was their brother, and Jackson was their father. Tucker, in his testimony, described Janet as mentally unstable. Eventually, he testified, he pulled Jackson aside in his room at the Miami resort and told him to watch out and be careful about her. Janet testified that during the trip, Jackson told her Gavin was in danger. She further testified that Jackson told her that because of his knowledge of psychology, he was able to protect them from the killers that were after them. However, in her testimony, Janet never seemed to understand who the killers were or what the nature was of their motivations. When the Bashir documentary finally aired in the U.S., Janet said she tried to watch it at the hotel, but Jackson wouldn't allow it. The following morning, Tucker left for his home in Orlando, and Team Jackson whisked the Arvizos off to Neverland. Luis Palanker, again. So I think they felt that the best way to control the story was to, to um, grab this family and take them somewhere where they're not accessible, and then tell, tell Janet that there's killers out there, and you're not, it's not safe for you to be out there or for you to go back home yet. It would be this time period, February to March of 2003, which would be held under scrutiny during the trial, with the Santa Barbara District Attorney's Office hitting Jackson not only with multiple counts of child molestation of Gavin, but as a mastermind in a conspiracy that ranged from counts of kidnapping and false imprisonment to extortion. Later in this timeline, at the beginning of the 2005 trial, Judge Rodney Melville read the counts in the indictment against Jackson and named five former Jackson employees and business partners as what he called unindicted co-conspirators. They included Ronald Knotzer and Dieter Weisner, often referred to as the Germans, Neverland Valley Entertainment Executive Frederick Mark Schaefel, Jackson friend Frank Tyson and Vincent Amen, 
whose duties included driving the Arvizos during the time Janet later testified she was being held against her will. The names of these unindicted co-conspirators came up repeatedly throughout the prosecutor's case against Michael Jackson. At the time, though, all Louise Palanker knew was that she couldn't get in touch with Janet. And they're unreachable. I'm trying to call, and all their phones have been disconnected, and I don't know what's happening. I don't know where they are, and I don't know what's happened to them. And then I get this panicked phone call from Janet, and she's whispering. And if you know Janet, you know that, okay, she can be really dramatic, but she's whispering and she's saying, you know, they're listening to everything I say. They're going to make us disappear. And I said, Michael Jackson is truly magical, but he cannot make people disappear. But I just did not know the full extent of what was going on. And she wanted me to go somewhere and meet them and take them back to my house. And I selfishly said no, because I didn't want I just didn't want to this drama coming home to to roost at, at my home. I didn't know what was going on, but I knew that if anything that she said was remotely true, that Michael Jackson's staff would be following her to my house. Palanker testified that she asked Janet to call her back at noon the next day, but she began to worry about the family and soon contacted her business lawyer to get his opinion. And I called him. And he said, you know, is she prone to, uh, I don't know what word he, I don't think he used the word hysteria, but is, is, is she prone to exaggeration or excitement? And I said, oh, yes. And he said, well, if, if she can call you, she can call the police, which made sense to me because I didn't know the whole story. So I got off the phone with him. I felt better. She never called me the next day to meet her at noon. I never heard from her again. Janet later testified that she didn't call the police from Neverland because she believed Jackson had a sophisticated phone system where he or his aides could listen to every phone call that came or went from the ranch. She couldn't call the police. She really was trapped there. I mean, a lot of people made fun of this when she said it on the stand, oh, you're so trapped. You go to Neverland and tell me you wouldn't feel trapped there. It is so in the middle of nowhere. While Janet and her children were trapped in the middle of nowhere, an official from Gavin School contacted the L.A. Department of Children and Family Services because of concern over what they saw in the Bashir documentary, all the sharing the bed business, and whatnot. Because of a subsequent DCFS investigation, Janet had a mandatory meeting with the social workers in Los Angeles, which she arranged to take place at the home of her boyfriend, Jay Jackson. Again, no relation to Michael. Janet testified that Michael Jackson's aides insisted that prior to the DCFS interview that she participate in a video planned to rebut the Martin Bashir documentary. So, on February 19th, Jackson's driver, Vincent Amen, drove Janet from Jay Jackson's Los Angeles apartment to the home of Michael Jackson's videographer, a guy named Hamid Moslehi. Janet's kids were already there because Hamid had driven them down from Neverland. Also at the home that night, she testified, was a private investigator named Bradley Miller. Janet testified that while she was at Hamid's house, she and her children were coached by Jackson aides to praise the singer in a scene planned to be included in a rebuttal video to the Martin Bashir documentary. The footage that was filmed that evening was not used in the rebuttal documentary and was later seized by police in a search warrant of Hamid Moslehi's house. This is just a small portion of what was repeatedly played for the jury by the defense, according to court transcripts. 
The footage appears still on many fan-made videos aimed to discredit the Arvizo family. My children and me know what rejection is, to be neglected, to be spit on, to be talked about, to be made an outsider, only because of our status in life or what we were going through. And Michael did not have that. He said, come to him, not just Gavin, but Star and Davelin and me, and called us his family. And Gavin was the one that asked him, could I call you daddy? And Michael said, of course. Very innocent and beautiful relationship, which everyone has spun it out of control. It's a wish come true. <laughs> For example, to see my children interact with an ideal role, a father role model, who shows them the basic foundation of what life is, and that's a loving family. The stronger your foundation, the higher your building is. In a portion of a clip from Aphrodite Jones's documentary, The Jury Speaks, that aired on Oxygen, that is also still available on YouTube, Gavin speaks about how Jackson gave him the strength to overcome his cancer. And all he wanted to do was good happiness. That's all he cared about. He told me, listen, I, I, I need you to get better. You are going to get better. Mm-hmm. He told me, I need you to eat up all the little cancer cells just like Pac-Man. Go around eating like Pac-Man. <laughs> I never forgot that. Janet testified that the filming went long into the night, and the following day, February 20th, she was taken to her interview with the DCFS officials to address the complaint made at Gavin's school about the Bashir documentary. Janet was accompanied by Chris Tucker's fiance, Asia Pryor, comedian Richard Pryor's daughter, whom Janet considered a close friend. Present, too, according to Janet's testimony, was a Jackson aide named Asaf, who gave her a tape recorder and instructed her to leave it in the room where she would be interviewed by the DCFS official. Janet testified that she was instructed to paint Jackson in a positive light and to show the DCFS employee a video of her children with Jackson that had been prepared, one that was burned on a DVD. In her court testimony, she described the content of the DVD of Jackson walking together with Gavin and Star at Neverland, with Gavin still sick. Around this time, according to Janet's testimony, Jackson's team, led first by the Germans, Ronald and Dieter, and then Frank Tyson, began to make arrangements for Janet and her children to leave the country to avoid the killers by going to, God knows why, Brazil. My understanding is that the the Jackson staff signed the kids out of school and basically said they're moving, they don't go here anymore. Which, of course, they had no business doing. Luis Palanker. And I don't know even why that was allowed. I think there's stricter laws at schools now in terms of who can sign you in and out or who can even pick you up. This all sounds crazy, but at the 2005 trial, Janet testified about Jackson's people signing her children out of school and being chauffeured to multiple government buildings to apply for visas for the children. Later, when asked on cross-examination why she didn't ask for help from the, no doubt, many government employees and police officers at these locations, she explained she was reminded by Jackson's associates that she was being monitored and told to sit down and be quiet while all the paperwork was filled out and she was handed papers to sign. She testified that everything was 
choreographed by Jackson's people and that she was told the killers would go after her parents and children if she didn't comply. Later in the trial, Cynthia Montgomery, Jackson's travel agent, testified that she was indeed instructed to buy one-way tickets for the family to Brazil. Here she is from our interview. In it, as in court, she mentioned her contact with Mark Schaffel, a top Jackson aide. I got a, I received a phone call from Mark Fred Schaffel that they needed one-way tickets to, to Brazil. We don't think anything of it. We get calls like that all the time. I mean, you know, it just wasn't anything out of the ordinary. They were exp- back then. They were super expensive, and I think they were fifteen thousand. I'd have to look at the fifteen thousand, right? Which was seemed very high. Which was, I mean, it was absurd, but it was last minute. I issued the tickets. They were never used. Um, but they were for, and I didn't know who these people were. I had no idea. Their, even their names didn't ring a bell on the manifest. But that, so they made me obviously testify in court because the thoughts were that it was a conspiracy with Dieter and Mark to get these these accusers out of the country. You know, so if they were one way in Brazil, nobody's going to extradite them back to California. Visa restrictions wouldn't allow Cynthia Montgomery to buy only one-way tickets. So what the jury saw projected was an itinerary dated February 25th, 2003, with four open-coach, round-trip seats that cost $15,000. Janet Arvizo testified that at first she was excited about going to Brazil. She even invited Asia Pryor to join them. But Janet later said she became worried about Gavin's health without any access to his doctors in Los Angeles. All the hullabaloo was for nothing, because the Brazil trip, like the Miami press conference, never came to fruition. The Arvizos, held against their will or not, continued to stay at Neverland, and while there, this finally came out. I'm sure most of you are aware of the recent television special that claimed to give an honest, candid, and revealing look into the private life of one of the world's most successful and controversial celebrities, Michael Jackson. On February 23, 2003, the much-anticipated rebuttal video aired. Standing before the Neverland gates was Maury Povich, a host not associated with media commentary so much as telling guys on his talk show, you are not the father. The revelations were explosive. The ratings were enormous. But Michael has claimed that what TV journalist Martin Bashir presented was a twisted and edited construction of scandal and innuendo, not a true representation of the interviews that actually took place. The first two-thirds of the rebuttal video, which was formerly titled The Michael Jackson Interview, The Footage You Were Never Meant to See, dealt with what they characterized as inconsistencies in the editing of Bashir's Living with Michael Jackson documentary. For example, on the cameras Jackson's people were using as backup, Bashir said that seeing the underprivileged children visiting Neverland was incredible and a spiritual thing. But then, in the finished documentary, with footage shot by Bashir's people, Bashir narrated the footage and called Neverland a dangerous place for children. Here, Jackson's longtime makeup artist, Karen Fay, reacted to seeing the Bashir version. It's so hard for me to imagine that Michael opened up the gates, not only to Neverland, but to his heart, to Brashear. The rebuttal video eventually pivoted to the main event, the drama caused by scenes of Gavin Arvizo and Michael Jackson talking about sharing a bed. Following the broadcast of Mr. Bashir's special, the speculation about what went on in Jackson's private life was once again headline news. 
primarily due to the story of Gavin, a young man who had reportedly been dying of cancer. Now, what's curiously missing from the rebuttal video is the interview Janet and her family gave to Jackson's videographer, Hamid Moslehi, just days before at his West Hills home. They didn't use it, Janet testified, because Jackson's team told her that her performance wasn't adequate to placate the killers. In its place, Moripovich read a statement, supposedly from Janet Arvizo. This statement, released to the press by Gavin's mother, says, I'm appalled at the way in which my son has been exploited by Martin Bashir. The relationship that Michael has with my three children is a beautiful, loving father, sons, and daughter one. To my children and me, Michael is a part of our family. Thanks for joining us, everyone. I'm Mari Povich. Good night. Although Team Jackson portrayed the time that the Arvizos were at Neverland as the family living high on the hog, the story that Janet later told seemed much more bizarre. Janet testified that they were at Neverland from February 21st to February 25th when she went, or was taken, to the country and in suites in Calabasas. She stayed there until March 2nd. From March 2nd to March 10th, they were all back at Neverland. Between March 2nd and 10th, she testified, the boys, Star and Gavin, were exclusively with Jackson, and she never asked where they slept at night. She said she would watch them from afar, from the window of the guest unit, playing and driving golf carts around with Jackson. She testified that she felt there were no guidelines when the boys were with the singer. I've lost my kids, she said. Janet testified that when she asked Jackson about his plans for tutoring or schooling her children while they are at Neverland, Jackson told her Ronald and Dieter, the Germans, would fix everything. Janet testified that her complaining and speaking days were over because the second she would say something, Frank Tyson would holler at her. Janet told sheriff's detectives, according to her testimony, that Jackson aides also told her that they had ways of making children disappear, like putting them in a hot air balloon, a statement that makes you wonder whether she was nuts or they were. Janet was scared, she testified, and finally engineered a way out. She attempted to arrange to go to one of the boys' orthodontists, hoping, she said, when she would finally be away from Jackson's people, that she could alert those in the office what was actually going on and get help. Jackson's aides, she said, were reticent about allowing her to go to an orthodontist, but when she told them DCFS would intervene if her son's braces weren't removed, they acquiesced, telling her the police getting involved would be bad PR for Jackson. Janet testified that her plan fell apart when, instead of taking them to her family's orthodontist, Jackson's people sent her to a local orthodontist's office, after hours, so her son was the only patient, and that she was accompanied by an intimidating Neverland employee who warned her she was being monitored. Janet said she felt helpless, and that she had failed again as a mother. Finally, events came to a head that led to a new plan to escape Neverland. Here's Louise Palanker paraphrasing what Janet testified in court. This is the story that led to Janet getting her kids out of there. Um, Michael's giving these kids alcohol and probably drugs. And he called it, he would put wine in a Coke, in a Coke can and call it Jesus juice. And Gavin and Star had been, doing a lot of drinking 
Meanwhile, Davelin is not in on any of this fun. She's with the mom at one of the guest units. It's only boys that stay with Michael Jackson. But they're drunk all the time. And then one day, Gavin says to Michael, I, I'm really scared because I, I have to go to the doctor. I have to go back down to the hospital tomorrow for an appointment, and I'm supposed to fill this jug with my urine for the day. I have to put a day's worth of urine into into this jug, and they're going to see that I've been drinking. Because Gavin, he had one kidney now, and they had to check to see how his kidney was doing. So he had to put a day's worth of urine into um, into a bottle. And when Gavin said to Michael, I don't know what to do. I have to go to the doctor tomorrow, and they're going to see that I've been drinking. Michael's response was, don't go. And to me, that's like the most pathological thing I've ever heard. You're telling a sick child who has cancer not to go. Gavin knew that when Michael said don't go, Gavin is a very smart person. And he knew that just because this superstar is saying don't go, I still have to go. And the only way for me to figure out how to do this is to tell my mother now that I've been drinking. So he picks up the phone in Michael's room. According to Janet's testimony, Gavin called her from Michael's room at 4 a.m. to tell her that he had been drinking wine, Jesus juice, as he called it, with Jackson, and was worried about his 24-hour creatinine clearance test at Kaiser the next morning so his doctors could assess the health of his remaining kidney. But Michael saw that Gavin was calling over to the guest unit, and that and Gavin said to his mother, I've been drinking, and when, when, they, when they test my urine, they're going to see that I've been drinking, which I don't think that's what they're testing his urine for, but that, that was his fear. According to her testimony, Janet didn't sleep the rest of the night, and at 6 a.m. asked Neverland staff to find Gavin since they had to leave by 7 a.m. She testified that a man named Jesus Salas found Starr and Gavin with Jackson, and Gavin, along with his mother and Jackson's chauffeur, Vincent Amen finally left for the appointment. And so one of the drivers took the jug of urine, Gavin and Janet, all the way from Los Olivos down to Kaiser in Hollywood. It's probably a three-hour drive. Along the way, they stopped. In her testimony, Janet described Gavin being asleep in the back seat, she in the passenger seat, drinking copious amounts of coffee to stay awake. Halfway through the drive, she testified, she asked to use the restroom. The chauffeur pulled over at a Denny's. When Janet came back, the car was gone for what seemed like a full five minutes. When Vinny, the driver, returned, he told her he was just gone driving around. Janet testified that when she got back in the car, she found the jug of urine, which she said was 90% full, now only had about a tenth of that amount. They come back to the car, and the jug of urine has been completely dumped. The strange incident of Gavin's urine allegedly being dumped was listed among the 28 overt acts that later comprised the conspiracy counts against the Germans, Frank Tyson, Frederick Mark Schaffel, and Vincent Amen, their names coming up repeatedly throughout the prosecutor's case against Jackson. According to Janet's testimony, driver Vincent Amen maintained that the jug of urine had simply fallen over. But, Janet testified, she didn't buy the excuse. She testified there was no urine smell or wetness on the car floor. So whether the urine was dumped out or replaced by the driver while she was in the Denny's, 
and Gavin was asleep in the back seat is unclear. I can only interpret that to mean that the driver was instructed to do so. So you've got a little kid who's been at the brink of death. He's filled a jug of a day's worth of urine, and one of Michael Jackson's henchmen has dumped it. So this is when Janet knew, I have to get my family out of here. Following the Kaiser appointment, Janet testified that Vinny took her to a shop to get her legs waxed. Once Vinny, the driver, left to walk across the street, Janet testified that she called Major Jay Jackson from the salon and spoke to him in code, whatever that was. Soon, Jay arrived, wearing his daily camouflage uniform, and a negotiation began between them, Vinny, and via phone, Frank Tyson, who Janet described as the one now in charge of keeping her family at Neverland. Since Janet had a court date to finalize her spousal support with David Arvizo the following day, she agreed to allow Vinny to take Gavin back to Neverland that night, and Vinny agreed to come back to L.A. with her three children for the court proceedings. That night, Janet testified, she stayed with Jay Jackson and told him everything. But the next day, Janet testified, the children were not returned, so she engineered a final plan to get the entire family away from Neverland. She concocted a story that her father was deathly ill and wanted the children to say goodbye to him. It worked, she testified, and the children were then returned. But, Janet said, much of their clothing, some new and bought for them by Michael Jackson, was being held on the condition that the family return to Neverland to collect it. Instead, Janet and the kids stayed with Jay Jackson, and Janet testified about incessant knocking at the door and phone calls from Frank Tyson, Vinny, and other Jackson staffers she had not seen or heard from before. Janet testified that she had already given up her old apartment while at Neverland, and Jackson's people had cleared the place of their belongings, along with any gifts from the singer or letters to Gavin from Jackson saying, I love you, or calling the boy Applehead and Doodoo Head. According to Louise Palanker, Janet decided to put the children in new schools, hoping that with Gavin's cancer in remission, her divorce from David finalized, and a new relationship with Jay Jackson, life would somehow finally stabilize. And uh, Gavin had to go back to school at this point, and he was being teased. He was being teased because in the documentary, he's sitting there with his head on Michael's shoulder, and they're holding hands, and she had never signed any release for the use of her children or their images on this television program, and so and she wanted her things back. After Janet escaped with her kids, they were followed. They always felt like they were being followed. There would be cars that would be driving really slowly wherever they were walking to and from school. Davelin had to run from cars. She could see cameras uh, focused on her. Sometimes she felt chased. During the trial, the prosecution played clips of surveillance video that had been seized from the Beverly Hills offices of Bradley Miller, who had been working as Jackson's private investigator. Yeah, he caused more problems than he was worth. This is another private investigator, Scott Ross, the one who later came onto the case to work for Jackson defense attorney Thomas Mazzaro. At the beginning, though, Bradley Miller was a private investigator who was working for Jackson's first defense attorney on the case, Mark Garagos. But Brad did surveillance. He did uh, domestic cases. He did divorce cases. His resolve when he was brought in was to follow the family and videotape them and, I guess, see what they're doing. I have no idea why. That would be completely irrelevant to me. 
Um, but that's what he did. He because that's what he knows. Again, you get people that work in a specific field and that's all they know. And so that was his resolve. The surveillance footage shown later at the trial showed Janet's parents entering their home and Davelin walking back from her new school and glancing over her shoulder nervously, then running away. There was also footage of Janet running errands and Jay Jackson entering the underground parking garage to his apartment. This is, uh, I mean, this is crazy, man. This is just bananas. <laughs> I mean, uh, so we've got Brazil, Miami, the Germans, hot air balloons, Jay Leno, George Lopez, uh, breaking there for, for a leg waxing. And I mean, it's like a, like a nightmare. It's like a bad dream. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we also have the cast of Rush Hour 2. I mean, I warned you, bitch. I told you at the top, this was like the crazy train express to dumpster town. I mean, in comparison to the Jordy Chandler case, which, I mean, it was a mess, but compared to this, it was like a walk in the park. I, I mean, yeah, it's like a slice of cake. Yeah, like a slice of delicious chocolate cake. And I, what I want to know is when does um, like any kind of system work here? Mm -hmm. Like, are there are there any adults in the room ever? Arguably, yes, because eventually Louise Palanker got in touch with Janet. Remember, she didn't hear from her for a while. So she gets back in touch with Janet and Janet starts to tell her about the stalking and the harassment from Jackson's people and how they want their stuff back. So Palanka recommended that she talk to Jamie Masada of the Laugh Factory, who then put Janet in touch with a lawyer named Bill Dickerman. Huh. Well, I got to say, I love that name. It sounds like a Simpsons character. And so when <laughs> Janet told Bill Dickerman her story, which at this point was just about the harassment and wanting their stuff back, Dickerman asked Janet if she wanted to sue Jackson, but she declined. Huh. And... Like, there's a big point here. Um, did she say anything about kidnapping or, like, being held against her will or, like, killers or anything? No, no, she didn't say anything about the killers that she kept repeating in her testimony. But according to Janet's testimony, she told Dickerman she just wanted her stuff back and to stop any additional broadcast of the Martin Bashir documentary because it featured her children in it. Here's a story from Good Morning America that kind of recounted this weird part in the events. It's reported by ABC News senior legal correspondent Cynthia McFadden. Good Morning America has obtained an explosive series of letters which document claims of a bizarre pattern of harassment by Michael Jackson and his associates. Attorney William Dickerman says the boy's family first came to him for help last February. Dickerman speaks here. They were very closely monitored and closely guarded. So you're telling me that this family, this mother, these children actually felt that they were sort of under house arrest at the Jackson compound. I would say that's accurate. From his court testimony, Dickerman revealed that he took it upon himself to write several letters to Jackson attorney Mark Garagos about what he claimed was despicable behavior and harassment of the Arvizo family by Jackson's people. Cynthia McFadden on Good Morning America again. On March 26, 2003, Dickerman wrote that Jackson's camp was making direct threats against his clients, surveilling and photographing the children's school banging on the family's door at all hours, telephoning the boy's mother, and leaving her disturbing notes, stalking the family by auto, holding the family's passports, and threatening them with dire consequences if they sue Jackson. 
Even though he had made no arrangements with Jackson's people to have the Arviso items delivered, and Dickerman testified that he had an outgoing message on his phone at the time saying he would be out of the office for a religious holiday, a truckload of the Arviso family's belongings was abruptly dumped in the lobby of his office building. Dickerman testified that the building manager was upset and had contacted him to say that they had refused to accept the delivery. According to testimony from Bill Dickerman, following his letter-writing campaign to Jackson attorney Mark Garagos, the harassment of the Arvizos finally stopped. But, according to Janet's testimony, Gavin had become inordinately withdrawn, angry, and violent. A darkness seemed to grow in his attitude that began to worry his mother. Louise Palanker discussing her conversations with Janet that mirrored Janet's trial testimony. Yeah, so according to Janet, he was just completely unmanageable. He was screaming, he was slamming doors, he was yelling, only Michael understands me, you don't understand me. Janet was going to church and praying. Janet testified how Gavin became angry and violent after leaving Neverland once and for all. She said that he hollered and yelled at her at the top of his lungs that Michael loves him. Bill Dickerman, according to his testimony, soon connected Janet to a higher profile attorney, someone very familiar with situations involving Michael Jackson and young boys, none other than Larry Feldman, the lawyer who represented Jordan Chandler in the 1993 civil case. After interviewing the Arvizos, Feldman became suspicious that something had happened between Jackson and Gavin when Starr told him about the alcohol they drank with Jackson and being shown pornography at Neverland. Feldman, by way of Dickerman, then brought Starr and Gavin to be interviewed by the same high-profile psychologist who had reviewed videotapes of Jordan Chandler a decade before, Dr. Stan Katz. Oh, it's like the whole gang's back together again. In a way, yes. It's it's almost like a sequel. Um, they Even on that Frozen in Time seminar that I played, they, they call it Michael Jackson 2. So, <laughs> Dr. Stan, that's the lawyers. Uh <laughs> In a way, yeah, the whole gang's back together because Dr. Stan Katz later testified to this as well in the trial. Here's him recounting interviewing the Arvizo children um, from actually from our interview with him. Bill Dickerman, yes. Bill Dickerman, I don't think he called me, but I did talk to Bill after I talked to Larry. And Larry asked me if if I would interview these three kids and see what I thought. And I said yes. And I had permission of their mother. I met with their mother. I don't think the father was around. And I met with the three children who at the time, I don't remember, I think Gavin was 12. I think his sister was older. Um, I remember being very impressed with Gavin. I I remember, I I thought that from the beginning, I thought that he was very credible. Um, I thought that he presented in a way that victims present. Gavin really seemed to have no axe to grind. He wasn't looking for anything at all. He was in remission from his cancer. Um, I think he would be a normal kid. Dr. Katz spoke to Gavin's brother and sister about what they claimed to have witnessed while traveling with Jackson. They talked a lot about, um, I think it was Star, Davlin told me how they had seen certain things on the plane once when they had flown on a private plane with Jackson um, or when they were at the ranch. And there were things about alcohol being poured into Coke bottles, sitting next to, um, they, they, one of them witnessed Jackson on a plane, um, cuddled up next to, um, 
Gavin with a blanket over them. Um, there was just, it, it just all sort of fit. Gavin talked about the pornography. He talked about the masturbation. He talked about uh, nudity. Um, I think Star, like Star was about 10, I think. Talked also about seeing some things. I don't specifically remember now what he saw. But I felt by the time I finished these interviews that this was very credible. And um, it had nothing to do with Jackson at the time. It had to do with just these kids reporting what they were reporting. And I would have reported this no matter what. Uh, the mandatory reporting law says we have to report suspected um, child abuse. But this was much greater than suspicion. And so I did report to both um, the police department Santa Barbara Police Department, and also to the Department of Children and Family Services. For the second time in Jackson's life, a mandatory reporter informed both DCFS and police investigators of allegations of child molestation against the entertainer, Luis Palanker. I think that when Starr disclosed to Katz that he had seen something, then it, as a mandatory reporter, Katz has to call the sheriff in Santa Barbara County. And Gavin ultimately disclosed to Steve Robel. Sergeant Steve Robel was the lead investigator in the case with the Santa Barbara County Sheriff's Office at the time. He later rose to lieutenant and commander before retiring in 2014. There's a video of Gavin's disclosure to Steve Robel that the jury saw. You need to sit right there, buddy. And we are going to try our best to make a case, okay, a criminal case. We're going to try our best. But you need to understand that we're going to need your cooperation. The government's own videotape of Detective Steve Robel and Detective Paul Zellis's interview with Gavin was eventually played for the jury. In it, Gavin is seated in a salmon-toned, floral-pattern, rolled armchair, adjacent to a matching sofa where a detective takes notes. The room looks like the set of a cheap soap opera, or the green room of a 1980s talk show. Gavin wears a blue short-sleeve button-up shirt and looks nervous and melancholy. Hey Gavin, can you tell us what your conversations, what, what you guys talked about? Type of, like, video games and... People he knew and like, like famous people. He talked about Neverland, and cartoons, and Simpsons and stuff. He said that he has something that can relax me, and because he says that I know you're stressed out about all the stuff that's going on, so I have something that can relax you. Gavin goes on to describe to Sergeant Robel about drinking alcohol with Jackson. He went to the room and emptied a Coke can. And he, I think he was Diet Coke, I don't know. But he got a bottle of wine and he put it in there. And then he took it to me and I asked him, well, uh, he said, drink it. And I said, what's that? And he said, it's, it's, it's drinking. So I drank it. And I didn't like the taste. And I asked him, yeah, what is it? And he said, it's wine. I'll help you. Just keep drinking it. Okay, I'm drinking it. In the interview, Gavin talked about how Jackson molested him five separate times at Neverland when his brother, Star, wasn't there. He told investigators how Jackson first told him how boys needed to masturbate, or else they may resort to bestiality. 
he said that you boys have to be like boys have to match because if we don't like we go crazy and he told me a story about this one boy that like he went and got a dog and he started having sex with the dog he said that he wanted to show me how to masturbate he wanted to show you how to masturbate Okay. And I said, no. And he said, you do it for me. Okay. And did he do it for you? There's a long pause here, about 30 seconds. And the detective calls Gavin, Kevin, a pseudonym for the purposes of the investigation. The LA Times later reported how, in the video, Sergeant Robel at one point told Gavin... I guarantee you will feel much better once you get it off your chest. I know there's a lot of stuff in there that's built up inside. Go ahead, Kevin. It's fine. He put his hand in my pants. Did he put it on the outside? Inside. Inside? And what did he do next? He started, he started masturbating me. Okay. Then, after a while, I told him I didn't want to do that. Did he stop? I told him not. And he kept on doing it. After all, he kept on saying that he wants to teach me. And I told him, I told him, no, no. And what, did he finally stop? Yeah, after like a long time. Did you, um, do you know what ejaculation is? He was extremely reluctant and very shut down. And there's no mistaking his horror and his deep humiliation that he's saying these words out loud. And immediately upon saying the truth, he he pleads, don't tell my mom, please don't tell my mom. So it's it's real. Oh god, I mean honestly, I feel like I have to like suspend disbelief in a way. How so? Well, I mean, one part of me would be horrified that or I mean, or if this happened to Gavin um, but then there's this, like, this other side of me that thinks the family is, like, troubled and obsessed with celebrities and kind of, like, untrustworthy in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, I'm also trying to remember what we learned um, from Ken Lanning and Jim Clementi about how boys, um, you know, especially victims of molestation that are young males, uh, like, how they behave and lie about not being victimized at first um and then the grooming like the grooming process and the whole like in quotes conspiracy of silence that takes place yeah 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 i i kind of i'm on the same boat with that and if and if if that's the case here the latter the, it, it totally tracks like it totally makes sense yeah, and in yeah. star's testimony in in our interview louise Poinker went on to describe how during the time that the boys were alone with Jackson, he'd get Gavin and Star to initially become complicit in bad behavior. 
he would get kids sort of like hardened. Like he would do this cursing game where he would say, I'm going to say a curse word to you. And then you have to say one back. So within like 10 minutes, they're already being really naughty. You know, he's saying something nasty and they're saying something nastier back. And now it's a game. So now they're already culpable. Even before anything's happened, they're already like, my mom would really be mad. They're at that point before they even have picked up a dirty magazine or looked at porn or whatever. And he would, then he would, he would ask Gavin if, if he'd ever masturbated and, you know, would just, he would just desensitize the kids. And then they'd be running around all hours of the night and day, like driving golf carts all over lawns, like just being bad. He already had them on everything. Like we're, you're all in trouble if anybody tells. So no one's telling on anyone. It's that kind of a boys club that he creates and kind of like, this is how men act. Like men just stand around and jerk off or whatever. He just desensitizes them so they know that they they can't tell any of this to their mom even before he ever touches them. That That's how a predator operates. Well, I mean, that sounds a lot like grooming, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was that's my thought. Yeah. I mean, really, though, my biggest question in all this baloney is why would Michael Jackson, in front of the whole world, because the whole world saw the you know the Martin Bashir documentary where mm-hmm. Gavin rested his head on him and and held his hand and yeah you know. yeah well not the whole world but a lot of people saw it yeah well it, it was enough to cause all this hubbub and there's all this PR blowout and the Arvizos are sequestered at Neverland and with all these like bozos that Jackson hired <laughs> why, right like why would Jackson choose that time of all times to molest Gavin Arvizo that's got to be a big argument right right yeah I mean that's that's again we're back at those sides like one side is like that's the dumbest thing why would Michael Jackson do that right. and then the other side you know like that makes no sense this family's a bunch of you know nuts and this is a bunch of malarkey it makes no sense but then the other side would say because michael jackson couldn't help himself and he doesn't really think about these things rationally because he's a preferential child sex offender right and he's also allegedly drinking alcohol and he's on you know inarguably from my understanding he's on prescription drugs there was Mm -hmm. evidence of that from the search warrant um, but either way, what, whatever the truth is here, there's no rationality to any of it. Right. Right. And the other, I mean, the other side would obviously say, well, that's ridiculous. He loves kids and would never hurt um, a kid or, you know. Yeah. And that's the central questions to this whole case. And it becomes a central question to the trial. Based on the allegations of the Arvizo family, Sergeant Steve Robel began an investigation that lasted into the fall. In the early hours of November 18, 2003, over 60 police officers from the Santa Barbara Sheriff's Department met outside Maddie's Tavern off Highway 154. The search of Jackson's property had been postponed over a month because the town gets overrun by college students at UCSB, the local university, for Halloween parties. They postponed another few days due to a car commercial that was filming along the small highway. Then, at approximately 9.06 that morning, the police executed a search warrant to raid Neverland Ranch for a second time. How you doing? Good. Right, Sheriff's, Sheriff's Department. Department. He needs to talk to you a minute. Let okay. me pull up just a little bit. Pull okay. up a little bit. So I can get out of your gate here. 
Okay, wait, 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 wait. Hold, before you start filming. Before you start filming. Oh, no, 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 no. Wait, I'm sorry, wait, 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 I'm sorry. Let me read this first. See, this is for officer safety. Okay. Do you have any guns on you? Oh, no, we don't carry weapons. You don't have any weapons? Okay, okay. Oh, no, just, just turn it off. Just turn okay, it off. That's fine. Because see that other ranch monitor. If you know, we're, you're going to be here with it. Okay. Okay. You're going to be here with it. Okay. You're going to stand. This is for here? security purposes only. That's the only reason. You guys need a uniform with you? Nice. How you doing, sheriff's department? We have a search warrant. We have a manager here. Manager. Manager. Hey, I'm going to get a uniform for you guys. Okay. Who else is here? Just you. Santa Barbara District Attorney Tom Snedden would later come under scrutiny for using so many officers, but he stated that for a property that size, over 2,700 acres, with dozens of employees, they needed the manpower to save time on the search. If Michael Jackson had been present, he would have been subject to arrest. He wasn't. He was in Las Vegas, working on a television special. Meanwhile, 422 miles away, his kingdom was falling. Maids, butlers, private security guards and cooks all stood by, terrified and at a loss, as cops stormed the property and overturned a world that had been built to renounce authority and exist beyond time itself. Investigators used drills to bore holes into six locks, keypads, and deadbolts that protected Jackson's two-story bedroom suite. A decade before, during the first raid, there was only a single entry lock to protect the bedroom. Now it was also rigged with an alarm when anyone trespassed across the 25-foot-long hallway leading to the door. Once inside, officers cataloged their findings. This is a jewelry box. Merchandise from movies like The Wizard of Oz and Peter Pan were collected into shrines about the living rooms. Porcelain dolls were arranged into silk sleeping nests or posed into haunting dioramas. Life-size mannequins of children and statues of superheroes looked on like impassive sentries as investigators swarmed the cluttered mansion. The New York Times also reported that there were three computer hard drives seized from Jackson's bedroom, which recorded visits to several internet pornography sites and also to sites offering children for adoption. Although the defense would later argue, without the jury present, that there was no proof that it was Jackson who visited these websites, and the prosecution acknowledged the computer evidence was circumstantial. In the end, the jury was not allowed to receive evidence regarding the computer search history. From photography and video of the raid, which is still readily available on YouTube, and was also released in a story by the Daily Mail, stood a framed and signed photograph of Home Alone star Macaulay Culkin. His inscription in the photo simply read, Don't leave me alone in the house. Telephone Stories is presented by Luminary Media and Ninth Planet Audio. It's written and produced by me, Brandon Ogborn, and produced by Omar Crook. 
Our show is edited and mixed by Ross Morgan. Our story editor is Jim Newton, with research and fact-checking by the wonderful Nona Yates. Jessica Gramulia is our music supervisor. Jason Diaz is our recording engineer. Our associate producer is Tess Ryan, and production assistance comes from Namir Kalik. John Ahern composed our original music, and our cover art is by Jacob Sanders. Special thanks to the good people at the Los Angeles County Bar Association for their permission to use extensive clips for this episode. LACBA serves attorneys, judges, and other legal professionals through committees, networking events, and pro bono opportunities, as well as public service and informational resources. You can find out more about their good work at lacba.org. If you have questions or comments on the show, or want to shower us with praise, email feedback at telephonestoriespod.com. All right, so, uh, you know, so I'm in Spain, so it's, you know how I, on that one episode, I said, Thriller Dance! Yeah, yeah, and it was so dumb that we were yeah. <laughs> like, well. let's use it as a <laughs> ringtone or something. But now Ross well, keeps fi- putting it in the end. Yeah, so I figured since I'm in Madrid, I'll uh, say it in Spanish. How's that? Do it. Okay, here we go. Baile de suspenso! <laughs> <laughs>